Take your game day treats to the next level with M&M's Hazelnut Spread Chocolate Candies. Hazelnut Spread is covered in smooth M&M's milk chocolate, delivering a mouthwatering blend of chocolate and hazelnut in every bite-sized piece. Enjoy them on your own or use them to spruce up your favorite desserts. Go hazelnutty and try the new M&M's Hazelnut Spread Chocolate Candies today. Hello and welcome to The Ringer MLB Show. My name is Michael Bauman and I am a staff writer at The Ringer. Uh, Let's not mess around. Let's get right to the meat of the episode and indeed to the Zach Cram of the episode. So here he is. All right, we're kicking off the show with Zach Cram. Zach, welcome. Howdy. Uh, I I like this topic we've got for the two of us today. It is uh, what we've decided to call hipster baseball Armageddon, i.e. the American League wildcard race. A's versus Rays, it rhymes and it should excite everyone listening to this podcast who cares about baseball and that A's and Rays are uh, two teams that I think fit a particular niche on the internet. Yeah, I and I would say you could probably throw Cleveland in there too. They currently occupy the first wild card spot, but we've talked about the AL Central race at some length recently. Uh, so they and you know they were very active at the trade deadline. So uh, we're leaving them out of this discussion. Although they you know, they never got a book written about them, but they are sort of in this small market, clever you know creative roster management mode of uh, mode of team building, and so. Uh, yeah, so right now the Tampa Bay Rays are a game ahead of Oakland for that second wild card spot. Their run differential is almost exactly the same to within a couple runs. Uh, the Red Sox have won five in a row, but they're still um, or they're still six games out of a wild card spot. Uh, you just wrote about their issues with Chris Sale, uh, so this this could change. But right now, this looks like a two team race, and. I just want to point out before we dive into the particulars of the race that I made, I think, an elaborate prediction about Tampa at the start of the season. I thought they would win the AL East. It no longer looks like uh, they have a chance to do so, given the distance between them and the Yankees. I just want to point out that both Fangraphs and Baseball Prospectus carry uh, advanced uh, advanced record estimators based mm-hmm. on uh, teams' underlying statistics, like their hits, their walks, their strikeouts, etc., And then it estimates how many runs they should score, how many wins they should have. And by both of those measures, the Rays are the third best team in baseball behind the Dodgers and Astros. By Fangraphs' base runs record, for instance, the Rays would actually be leading the Yankees by seven games in the standings. But the Rays have underperformed by a lot. The Yankees have overperformed their peripherals by a lot. So my prediction won't come true. But on some level, I wasn't wrong. I, I like that. That's a good fun fact for this uh, segment because, of course, Tropicana Field will occasionally host a bowl game. Uh, I think they've hosted arena football in there uh, in the past. Uh, the Oakland Coliseum was fa- you know, famously uh, shared with the Raiders. So there's a lot of conversion from baseball to football in both of those stadiums, which involves moving of goalposts. There we go. And, uh, you know, I, I this is something that, that you seem to be quite adept at. Took you a while to get to that joke. I'm impressed. I lined it up all on the fly. I had to get there, but uh, but we got there eventually. Um, I don't know, what do you do? You have a favorite of these two? I guess let's just just start with that. So I think the Rays are a better team. I joke about their underlying numbers. I think those actually are meaningful. The Rays obviously have a lot of injury concerns at the moment. They entered the season with three starting pitchers and two of them, Blake Snell, the 
reigning Cy Young winner and Tyler Glass now, who is maybe the best pitcher in baseball the first few weeks of the season, uh, are both injured. And Yanni Chirinos, who was quite good this year, he's been out for a couple weeks now, too. So their staff, and Tampa, of course, is maybe the most creative of any management team in baseball in terms of how they use their staff, but their staff is troubled. Uh, the question I have for you is, like, is the Oakland team that we're watching right now that is close to the playoffs once again, that is once again really hot in the second half, are they actually good? I can't really tell. They beat Houston over the weekend, but it seems like everything besides Matt Chapman, who has been excellent uh, every year, everything that went well for them last year has gone poorly this year and vice versa. Like Stephen Piscotty and Chris Davis have taken huge steps back. Chris Davis uh, has hit like Baltimore Chris Davis for four months now, but it's okay because someone like Marcus Semien has developed into one of the best shortstops in baseball. And in the bullpen, like Blake Trinan's been pretty horrible this year, but Liam Hendricks has stepped in and been one of the best relievers in baseball. And it's unclear like which consistently good players they have, but I guess it's creating a, a serviceable product either way. Yeah, and I have I struggle with that too because I look at that team last year and it did sort of from the outside really look like Chapman and the best bullpen in baseball and not just the best bullpen but in baseball but an extremely uh deep bullpen but like they're not that deep this year I mean it's not just Trinan who's taking a step back it's Lou Trevino at uh, Lou Trevino I think I said Lou and not Lee but I do this every time um <laughs> Lou Trevino have both they're ERAs are both in the uh, the mid to upper fours right now. And as good as Hendricks has been, like you don't have that. They're not as scary top to bottom uh, as they were last year where like they went, you know, they went with the the bullpen game in the wild card game. And honestly, like I'd take their bullpen against, I would take their bullpen last year against almost any starting pitcher in baseball for, for one game. That was the smart thing to do, even though it didn't work. Um, and I don't know, like, so right now the rotation's a little bit better, but it's full of guys like Mike Fires, Brent Anderson, uh, Chris Bassett, who I don't know. Like, I don't really trust those guys. And maybe this is just like if if it was Sean Manaya putting up the same the exact same numbers, you know, it would be a, a different thing. Or if Jesus Lazardo had been healthy, or if they were pitching uh AJ Puck out of the rotation, you know, then then maybe I would I would have an easier time believing it, but like you know their underlying numbers look fine. I'm just you know it's they're as hard as any good team in baseball to just sort of look at the BRF page and say okay this is how they're doing it. That's kind of what I mean. And with Tampa, it I think it's easier to identify what's working and what isn't. Like Tampa's offense as a whole is basically league average. They have a team OPS plus of 99, 100 is average. And if you look at their players, a lot of them are hovering there, like Tommy Pham and. Austin Meadows are on the good side of average. Someone like Kevin Kiermeyer is on the bad side, but none of them are that far. It's not like they have any MVP candidates, uh, but they have Charlie Morton, who's a scion contender. Someone like Ryan Yarbrough has been really hot of late. He has, in his last 11 games, dating back to mid-June, he has a 1.43 ERA, 54 strikeouts to four walks. So when he's able to step in for Blake Snell, it's kind of like you're not losing Blake Snell if you have Yarborough pitching like him, but it's easier to identify the performers on Tampa's roster. And I don't know if that means it's actually sustainable or not, because again, both teams have played to a similar record this year. But like you said, it's just easier to look at it and identify, well, that's how they're 20 games above 500. 
Yeah, and it's like I look at their and you know I was down there and saw them uh, for five five straight games in person a couple weeks ago, and it just watching them, it's easy. Like they give me sort of poor man's twenty fifteen slash twenty seventeen Astros vibes that it's a team that the lineup doesn't look the same. Like, you know, that you could change out five or six players, completely shuffle the lineup. You don't know who's going to make every turn through the rotation, but they have not just a ton of good players, but good players who are suited to, to certain challenges. And that's, you know, something that Kevin cash and the, uh, and the front office have done well of like making sure all the pieces fit together and they've got you know, guys for lefties, they've got righties, they've got guys for defense, they've got guys for offense, and it's just a matter of plugging them into the right situation. So I think, I mean, if anything, they get one thing I like, or one thing I like about them down the stretch is they seem very well suited to really put some distance between themselves and either Oakland or Boston, who maybe go go back and uh, go up and, and end up hosting that wild card game because. Once this team gets the expanded rosters in September, they're going to be able to to mix and match even more than they have already. And the other thing is, you mentioned Tyler Glass now, Blake Snell, and Yanni Chirinos. All three of those guys are set to come back at some point uh, in September. So that rotation, which right now is you know Ryan Yarbrough and Brendan McKay's figuring stuff out, and Charlie Morton's been you know he'll probably end up on the Cy Young ballot uh, this year. But after that, you know there's there are a few. Um, you get the odd opener, you get uh, the odd spot starter bullpen game, other kind of question mark. Um, but apart from that, it like that get that goes from serviceable if you're clever to just scary by anybody's standards real quick if those three guys come back. The other reason that Tampa is in good position is Nick Anderson, who is a pitcher I had never heard of before this year. He got on my and I think a lot of other people's radars early in the season when he was pitching well as a rookie for the Marlins he had some great pitcher gifts uh but have you followed what Nick Anderson has done since coming to Tampa at the trade deadline I know he's I I know he hasn't walked anybody or given up a run yet so he's thrown eight innings now uh as we record on Tuesday afternoon he has faced 26 batters and struck out 18 of them so Nick Anderson can just strike out everyone between now and uh, October, and they'll be fine. But in more seriousness, I think Nick Anderson speaks to one of the things that attracts me about both of these teams, which is that they sort of enter the baseball Twitter consciousness in similar ways of guys who you either haven't heard much about before or see like one highlight of, and then you start tracking them more and more closely and realizing like, hey, this guy's actually really good and fun and not just a highlight, but actually a serious contributor. I think Ramon Laureano is a great example of that in Mm -hmm. Oakland where he made some phenomenal defensive plays last season and this year has actually performed well at the plate. He has a 125 OPS plus. He reached 21 home runs already despite uh, going on the injured list. And he's also expected back in September, if not the end of this month, and could help Oakland uh, moving forward. But it's just a lot of different players who aren't household names but they're names that we know and know are good baseball players and that's a fun thing to see like watching the astros and yankees and dodgers is great but this is the kind of fun uh midsummer nothing else is going on thing to follow yeah and the nice thing about i don't know and and we've gotten on both of these teams and cleveland for not spending as much to as uh 
uh, as a an ostensibly competitive team should. But you know, there is like a certain allowance that it's you know it's one one thing when the Mets or the Astros or the Phillies act this way. And it's another thing when like a legitimate small market team is actually kind of clever. And so like, I don't know, one of these teams I think will be uh, sort of a feel good story, like the Indians of 2016 or, or the Brewers last year, just the, when you're seeing a club really get creative and the whole really does become more than the sum of its parts. The question I have is yes, it's true, but will we also look back on their inability to take on more money as the defining reason they didn't make the playoffs obviously the rays continually don't uh pay for players charlie morton who signed just a two-year deal this offseason was the most expensive free agent signing in team history and he's been their best pitcher he's a cy young contender so that shows that signing particular players spending money on specific good players actually helps the rays for instance were interested in trading for edwin encarnacion this year he went to the yankees instead and is that because the Yankees were willing to give a better prospect or take on more money? Maybe, but Tampa's offense, which is middling, would that look better with Encarnacion in the lineup? Perhaps. Like they got Jesus Aguilar at the trade deadline, and he's hit pretty well. But they could use another home run bat in their lineup. Yeah, and you know, guys like and like G Man Choi's been. I, I he doesn't have ideal power for a first baseman, but that's not really ha- you know what they need from him. They need him to be an on base guy, and he's been just fine there. Um, yeah, I you know I think that is a, a fair charge to to level at some of these teams that that uh, jump up and bite that. You know, it both of these teams are going to win more than eighty six games, but in my head, ninety you know ninety wins is the uh, is the threshold for making the playoffs. So like just as a shorthand, they end up a couple games short of the playoffs and they didn't go out and get, you know, Dallas Keuchel has been the shorthand for, for this, for, for a long time. You know, the difference is just the one starting pitcher and you could have gone out and, and gotten that this off season. Um, you know, and I certainly, if the Rays hadn't done that with Charlie Morton, I don't know that they'd be in this race right now. They, you know, they'd probably be, uh, back behind Boston right now, even, even if Morton hadn't gone to to one of their uh, one of their competitors, so yeah, it's it, it as as with everything in these uh, in these discussions, you got to balance like the actual limitations of you know economic limitations of some of these markets with uh, you know the willingness to compete to and to spend to compete by ownership. But you know, I think it's both of these teams are are fun to watch. Like I you know I really enjoy watching this this race team. Um, they've got. I don't know, panache for for lack of a better better way to put it. I think you know they're it they're uh they're fun. They've got a lot of energy, and I think that they're uh um they're going to be a dangerous team, particularly if they get out of that wild card and if they get some of these pitchers back. Your point about their win totals are sh- is shrewd, though. That's I think one of the reasons I'm having trouble determining just how good this Oakland team is because the AL is so unbalanced this year with teams that could win 100 games and teams that could lose 100 games that like it's inflating the win totals of all of the good teams just because they play so many games against the Royals and the Orioles and the Tigers. And in the case of the A's and Rays, I wrote about this in my Red Sox piece today. Since the AL and NL went to a two wildcard structure back in 2012, the median number of wins required to take the second wildcard is 88 and a half. So most seasons getting into the upper 80s, like even 86 and 85 games have won wildcard spots. Just getting to the upper 80s is usually good enough. 
This year, the Rays are on pace for 94 wins. The A's are on pace for 93. Last year... Yeah, uh, last year, you don't even need to project. Like, second wild card was 97 wins last year. The Rays won 90, didn't come close. So So I think that's where... Normally, I'd look at a team that's, what, 71 and 53 or 73 and 53 and think they're in really great shape. They can go 500 the the rest of the way and have a chance. And that isn't really the case anymore just because of the skewed league structure. And that's where some of the difficulty comes in. That's also where, like, normally a 92-win season would be a really successful season, but not if that means you're missing the playoffs. Yeah, I wonder... I mean, it's, I would say it's a a successful season no matter what, but you know, maybe the Rays aren't, uh, on pace for what'd you say? 94 wins. Mm -hmm. Uh, like you said, if they don't play the, the Blue Jays and the, and the Orioles 38 times a year, you know, maybe playing the Yankees 19 times a year is, uh, is that big, uh, uh, a handicap. And, you know, it's just, this is just sort of how things are. And like, I don't think this is a, the, imbalance between or i would say the balance of the national league and the imbalance in the american league um that's it's just so obviously gonna work itself out that i don't think there's anything like we need to do to change this to fix it you know what i mean but uh yeah certainly 90 you know 90 wins or 95 wins doesn't mean the same in both leagues right now 95 wins probably gets you a home field advantage in the first round in the national league right now doesn't it yeah, I, looking at the two teams' remaining schedules, I think Oakland's is a little more favorable. If they're in good position midway through September, I think they probably take this just because... So they play a four-game series against Houston from September 9th to 12th, and then after that, their last 15 games are against teams with losing records. Meanwhile, uh, in that stretch, the Rays play the Dodgers, the Red Sox, and the Yankees. Maybe by that point, like the Red Sox are out of it or the Dodgers and Yankees are resting players. And that's why it's a little bit silly to game out schedules this far out. But I think Oakland, like they do seemingly every year now, has a chance to not only qualify for the playoffs, but enter it with a lot of uh, mythical momentum. Yeah, I mean, uh, Tampa's in that spot right now where they're going to have Houston and Cleveland in a couple weeks, but they're in a run of in the middle of a run, I think of like. 22 games in a row against teams with losing records um, and including like Miami and Baltimore and, and a couple others that, you know, they, they've been, they've been holding their own. I think they've been doing uh, just fine. You know, they needed a couple walk-off wins to, to take two out of three from the Tigers, which is not something that you want out of any, you know, out of a team that's, uh, that's trying to make the playoffs. But yeah, I, I think we're close enough now that you can sort of look at these schedules and say like, this team needs to, yeah, I don't think it's like getting necessarily granular to say that like Tampa Bay's got an advantage in the schedule now, but in the last two weeks of the season, Oakland's going to have that advantage. So it behooves Tampa Bay to put some space between them and the and the A's while they can, while that's easier to do, you know? So do you have a pick? I, I mean, Tampa's got the lead right now. I like them. Um, I think they're a better club top to bottom. I think they're deeper. Uh, I don't think they've got a single player as good as Matt Chapman, uh, but I like their pitching a lot better, particularly if they get even one or two of Snell Chirinos uh, or Glass now back between now and the end of the season. Like we've been talking so much about what happens when Corey Kluber and Carlos Carrasco come back. I think like what Tampa has coming back to their rotation could be even scarier. Uh, and so, you know, you just talked about momentum or peaking at the right time. Like, this this could be one of those situations where 
I'm, I'm struggling to think of an example right off the top of my head. You know, maybe like the 2015 Blue Jays where like the club changes. And so the overall record, although the 20, 2015 Blue Jays were uh, like a killer lineup into all season before they even added uh, David Price and a couple of those other Troy Tulowitzki was that deadline. So it, maybe that's not a, a great example, but they uh, they're one of those teams who could be like, this is just not the same team that it was to start the season. And you, you just can't, uh, you know, look at their overall record. Oh, the Columbus Blue Jackets this year. That was the the example I was going to use. That famous baseball example, the Columbus Blue Jackets, uh, who uh, um, Tampa Bay sports fans will know well. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think that, that Tampa's got a got a chance to to pull something like that off. They get a couple of those pitchers back. I could see them, you know, going all the way to the World Series maybe. Baseball prospectus's playoff odds interestingly, they give Tampa about a 75% chance and even Oakland about a 50% chance cuz they're not convinced that Cleveland's going to make the playoffs. And I know you mentioned that earlier in the conversation. We've talked about Cleveland a bunch. I think Cleveland's in just because I think right now they have the best team given their trade deadline upgrades to the offense and the fact that they still have pitchers like Bieber and Clevenger in the rotation. But it's possible they both end up making the playoffs and then sure. we get a uh, hipster Armageddon in the wild card game. That'd be that'd, even more fun. That'd be a lot of fun. Yeah, I mean, certainly one and a half games is nothing. And that's as we record what the the lead from uh, from Cleveland to Tampa Bay is. But the other, you know, the reason that, that I like Cleveland and Minnesota, who's not, that far ahead of them is they've got two shots, uh, whereas it's wild card or bust for for both Tampa Bay and Oakland. So, yeah, this is uh, this is going to be fun to monitor down the stretch. So, and one of these teams I imagine will make a very fun wild card contestant. Uh, so, I uh, I'm looking forward to following that and to coming back and talking uh, around September 15th when the Red Sox uh, retake the lead in the AL wild card, and we have to pretend we never recorded this segment. I'll be busy learning what the Columbus Blue Jackets did this year. Yeah, you would actually really enjoy this. We'll talk about this off air. Until then. (laughs) All right. Support for today's show comes from Sonos. Sonos meticulously designs every speaker from the inside out. Their experts in acoustics and engineering even work with Oscar and Grammy-winning producers, mixers, and artists to ensure an immersive listening experience. Getting started is easy. Just plug in your speaker and open the app, then connect all your favorite streaming services. Start with one speaker and connect more over Wi-Fi whenever you're ready. All Sonos speakers and components work together so you can customize your sound system. You can also connect your TV or turntable to listen to everything you love. Now, it's just as easy as it sounds. I've got a Sonos in my living room right now. It came in a box. I opened the box. I plugged it in. I downloaded the app. And within a couple minutes, I had dramatically improved the sound quality uh, of my TV. And the nice thing about it is it's modular. So you can buy the one, you can buy the beam, and then you can buy other speakers as you get the, the space or the time or the money. or you know, It's very easy to customize. So if that sounds good to you, go to Sonos.com to learn more. My pleasure to welcome my next guest, a writer for The Athletic, uh, expert on all things Cincinnati Reds, Trent Rosecrans. How you doing? Good. Thanks for having me. So the reason that I wanted to talk to you today is uh, you have had an up-close look at a unique player, uh, Aristides Aquino, who is the fastest player in Major League history uh, to 9, 10, and 11 home runs. You've written about him extensively. Uh, what is what is watching this Terrapin like? It's been crazy, um, you know, because you, at the athletic, one of our things is we try to kind of get deeper and do these things. So I'm doing what 
in my newspaper days would be the second day stories and the second week stories. And I got those out like really early. And now it's just like, oh my God. Um, it's the same thing. You just got to keep updating these, um, these statistics because they're just, or these firsts and these uh, fun facts, if you will. And, and, and just keep updating them because they just keep coming. And it's, so it's, it's been crazy. And, um, but it's been a lot of fun to watch. Uh, I, I like dingers. I don't think I'm alone. Yeah. yeah it, so like the guys who, and it's been recent players whose records have been broken, like X home runs and Y games, Trevor story, Reese Hoskins. Um, what I like about Aquino is, and I haven't, I have a hard time putting my finger on what exactly, uh, about him says this to me, but there's something like very nineties about him, the, you know, the sort of the long swing, you know, the, the Tony Batista, uh, open stance before the pitch and the fact that he's a you know tall, lanky guy who really like puts everything into his swing. You know, there's just something very, uh, I, it, it brings me back to like Mark Witten, you know? Yeah, no, I mean, it's just fun to watch. And, and, you know, I think the one thing that we lost in the home runs too is, some of the other things that he has, those other tools, he's really fast. And the, the one day that he hit the 118 mile an hour, uh, had the 118 mile an hour exit velocity. He also had a throw of 101 from the outfield. Um, so it just, it's like, it just keeps steamrolling all these different, um, all these different kinds of, uh, ways to be impressed by, by this guy's start. I mean, the other obvious uh, thing is like he ended up replacing like he was called up specifically to replace Yasiel Puig, who is, uh, you know, his own um, barrel of entertainment out there in right field. And it I, that like those are big shoes to fill. And it's uh, really incredible to see, you know, I'm, you know, not watching the Reds every night, but like it seems like everybody out there is really into this. And it's just incredible to see somebody like I, I, you almost forget that Puig ever played there now. I, I, yeah, it's it's kind of crazy just how quickly it is. You remember Matt Kemp played for the Reds at one point? Vaguely. Um, that was in the year 2019. Um, so, yeah, it's it's been crazy, it's this, this new thing, and he keeps... Uh, we're all kind of amazed by the newest, shiniest thing, and right now it's tough to get newer or shinier than Aristides Aquino. And, and, I mean, heck, most of that is just because it's fun to say his name. Yeah. I don't know how serious you were about that, but like, that's huge. No, like, no, you know, I'm not. Up, I'm 100% yeah. serious. Yeah. I'm a writer. I love words. I, I was just saying, I grew up listening to Harry Callis and like, you know, hearing him say Andres Gallo Raga. Like, this is definitely one of those names. Right. Can you imagine Harry Callis saying Aristides Aquino? It, it would I, be I, beautiful. I've had enough. I've had enough fun imagining Harry Callis saying Johanio Suarez. Like that would have been an all-time Harry Callis name. Um, so, like, this is not a top 100 prospect coming up. You know, we we see some hot young 20-year-old who's been on every top 100 list. You know, and was a top you know first-round pick come up. And it seems like that happens once every couple weeks. But this is a guy, as you wrote that he was non-tendered by the Reds this offseason, that he was always viewed as toolsy, and it was uh, you know, Donnie Ecker uh, and a couple other members of the Reds staff really helped rebuild his swing uh, this offseason to help him become what he has. Yeah, and uh, there's a guy that has had success, and, and this is something you see throughout the years. Um, 
when you look at his kind of stats for the minor leagues, you see a guy who has not a lot of success, then changes something, gets success, struggles, success, struggle, and keeps changing and keeps learning. And, and that's why um, he's been able to do this. And I think that's what makes it a great story because when I, I'm there in the clubhouse and, you know, this is now a team that has no players over the age of 30 on the active roster. None. And uh, just two guys born in the 80s, and both of them were born in, in November of 1989. What that means is these guys have been around Aristides Aquino for a long time, um, whether it's someone like uh, Brian O'Grady, who just came up and has been up and down since then, or, or Josh Van Meter, or even Nick Senzel has been there with him a bit. And and even, I think, Jesse Winker, to an extent, has been around Aristides. What really stands out to me is how excited they are for him. That this is a guy that they all have been rooting for for years because, as as uh, Josh Van Meter told me the other day, he said, he's been rooting for us the whole time, too. You hear it all the time, but it's rarer to see it. He is just as happy, this is what Josh Van Meter was saying, was he's just as happy when the team wins and somebody else goes four for four and, and he's zero for four, then when he goes four for four, he's just always smiling. And, and they kind of laugh because, you know, as this nickname, the Punisher that his, his um, brother gave him when he was an early teenager, because he just punishes the baseball. But we were kind of like, I think Josh Van Meter and I kind of came to this conclusion. It's kind of like, build a bear you know you'll see a, a teddy bear with a punisher costume because because he's just not <laughs> you talk about like the most brutal comic book character and he's the exact opposite he's just the nicest guy and like oh gritty was just laughing so hard about this last night when we were kind of chatting because he's just like he is the nicest kid ever and he's like that nickname just doesn't fit but then you watch him hit the ball and it absolutely fits yeah. I mean, you don't hit uh, 11 home runs in, in 18 games without getting, a you know, the odd wall scraper here and there. But like you invoked the the 118 mile an hour one. There was another one that was like to the uh, second deck way, you know, way out over the batter's eye in center field. And you could see guys like, you know, coming out of the dugout. You know, it's it's unbelievable power. Like even even in the days of the juice juice ball and like, you know, every teenager who comes up is six four, two twenty. It's it the, the power stands out even now. Yeah, it's it's crazy. And I think there was one of those games. I think it was his first home game. Um I just written about him and I was kind of writing something else too. He had um a single and then his first home homer. But the single, I think, was like 110 or 108 or something. And I was like, that ball was just demolished. And it was just not in the air enough. <laughs> but it mm-hmm. was hit certainly hard enough. So I want to, we t- I've sort of found the Reds really interesting all season, just based on the moves that they, and you know, we'll zoom out a little bit to the, to the club as a whole. I found them interesting sure. all season, just based on the, uh, the moves they made this this offseason that they were sort of setting themselves up to take like a free hit at, at making the playoffs. And it hasn't quite worked like aspects of it have, have worked out really well. But they you know had the odd injury here and there, the, you know, um, 
they're not playing up to their their uh, run differential. You know, there's a couple other things where it's just they're probably going to end up on the outside looking in. And then they made a, a bunch of really interesting moves uh, at and around the deadline. The most obvious one of those is the Trevor Bauer trade that saw Puig and Taylor Trammell uh, going out. You know, uh, Tanner Roark is is uh, in Oakland now. They've been very active on both ends of the waiver wire, uh, bringing in Kevin Gossman, Freddie Galvis, you know, Jared Hughes, who is not Jared Hughes of last year, obviously, but he's uh, left the team now. There's been a lot of turnover, and I'm having a hard time like sort of gauging the net impact of that in terms of present versus future. Like Some of these players are are going to help the team in the short term. And there, many of them are, are under team control. Uh, you know, Bauer is, Galvis is, uh, Gosman is um, for 2020, but not far beyond that. So I'm, in, you know, interested to to see, you know, from somebody who's who's a lot, uh, you know, sees the team up up uh, up close and personal. Like, what you make of that is sort of a net effect the, the moves that they've made uh, at the trade deadline and on the waiver wire. Sure, um, I think it puts a lot of importance in 2020. Um, cause 2019, you know, I think they said we want to go to the playoffs, but I think the real, I don't know, um, the real measure of success was, is this team demonstratively better than they have been in the past and the past couple of years. And I think that is obvious. I think they are much better. Um, uh, it's shoot, just watching the pitching, starting pitching every day. Um, it's, it's a lot easier to watch it every day and the games take a lot less time because the pitching is so much better. <laughs> but, but, but while that has been a more, um, I don't know the word I'm looking for, like, you know, it, it, it's not a, it's not a definitive goal. You, you, you aren't putting that playoffs are bust on it at this point when you move a taylor trammell or a one and a half years of trevor bauer it really puts the onus on that that one year and that being 2020 um so that's really where they are and they're kind of i think some of these things were doubling down on 2020 you're adding a guy like Freddie Galvis, um, who may or may not be here in 2020, but he gives you options for 2020. Uh, now, the, one of the big questions at the break was, well, if you're looking ahead to next year, who's your shortstop? And at the point, it was like, well, maybe you're going to pay to keep Jose Iglesias around, who has done a, a really really nice job and been a good fit. Or do you let him go and go with Jose Peraza? Well, now you have the same question, um, but you throw Freddie Galvis's name in there and maybe that, you know, that, that shows Jose Iglesias that, I mean, maybe it's a marketing or not a marketing, but a um, bargaining piece because they have options. It hurts the leverage for Jose Iglesias uh, to, to, to come back for this team. And, and they really like him, and they would like him to come back. But at some point, it's like, well, we have Freddie Galvis for this much. We can take, take or leave you for this much. <laughs> and so it gives them some of that kind of leverage, which is 
extremely interesting to me. Yeah, I mean, they they want him back, but at a, a certain figure. I mean, this is I I would hope that if if they're serious about uh, uh, contending in twenty twenty, they'll be active in the free agent market. But uh, you know, this is not a particularly right, inspiring but it's free agent market. So yeah, yeah right. I don't know. I, mean, I don't know who the guy is. Yeah. It's Didi Gregorius, and I mean, I, I think there's certainly interest in Didi, and there's also certainly familiarity. I mean, the team has signed him um, before trading him away in a different Trevor Bauer trade, three-team trade. Um, but that's about it, and it looks like he'll probably stay with the Yankees. I think we all assume that, and from there, I, I think Freddie Galvis is as good as, or maybe even better than anybody else on the market. Save Jose Iglesias. So there you go. Uh, Aquino's, uh, uh, he's probably going to cool down, but, uh, you know, I, this has been a fun yeah. ride to. I mean, he, went, he went two games without a home run. I mean, yeah. it's a slump. I was just, I was just thinking that like in the, the time, you know, in, in that it's taken us to, to arrange this podcast appearance. He's, he's been on the, the longest slump of the season. So, you know, I hope he, I hope he of breaks his out of career. <laughs> You know, it's funny, um, on the 17th, so this is a couple of days ago, uh, Joel Luckup, who does uh, stats and is on Twitter at, at uh, jluckup, uh, L-U-C-K-H-A-U-P-P, had, uh, had a, a, a stat that Joey Votto has walked in 16% of his career plate appearances. Aristide Sacchino is homebred in 17.8% of his career plate appearances. <laughs> And that was on August 17th. That has gone down. But still, it's insane. That's how insane this is. That he's as good in this short sample of hitting home runs as Joey Votto is at walking. And as Joey will jokingly tell people that he is very good and gets paid well to walk. All right. Uh, well, I appreciate you coming on to, to talk about all this. Uh, we will be watching uh, with interest until Aquino does cool off. But, uh, you know, thanks for, for taking the time to come on. Anytime, Michael. When I was in school, the cool thing was Tamagotchis, Pokemon, all sorts of computerized little critters. You were cool if you had them, and if you didn't, then you weren't. Now the coolest things in school are Bombas socks. Bombas are the most comfortable kid socks ever. They're designed with several comfort innovations that help make them feel better than any other kid socks ever made. And they're so colorful, literally bursting with color. They even have a little colorful bee on them. And since Bombas donates a pair of socks, for every pair purchased, you should get some for yourself too. I've got these nice bright blue ankle length Bombas socks on. They're extremely comfortable and stylish. So send your kids back to school with Bombas, the socks that will keep them comfy, colorful, and ready to take on the school year. Visit bombas.com slash MLB and get 20% off your first purchase. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash MLB for 20% off your first purchase. Bombas.com slash MLB. Everyone knows about the risks of driving drunk. You could get in a crash, people could get hurt or killed, but here are some surprising statistics. Almost 29 people in the United States die every day in alcohol-impaired vehicle crashes. That's one person every 50 minutes. Even though drunk driving fatalities have fallen by a third in the past three decades, drunk driving crashes still claim more than 10,000 lives every year. Drunk driving can have a big impact on your wallet, too. You could get arrested and incur huge legal expenses, maybe even lose your job. So, what can you do to prevent drunk driving. Plan a safe ride home before you start drinking, designate a sober driver, or call a taxi. If someone you know has been drinking, take their keys and arrange for them to get a sober ride home. We all know the consequences of driving drunk, but one thing's for sure, you're wrong if you think it's no big deal. Drive sober or get pulled over.
So we were just reminiscing about uh, the uh, turn of the century Texas Rangers and uh, here to talk about some people who weren't alive to remember those turn of the century Texas Rangers is uh, Ben Lindbergh. Ben. Hi. Yeah, we're talking about young hitters, the best young hitters ever, some would say, including me. I think that's a I mean, you just wrote extensively about this. So I'm sure like I was about to say, you know, that's a reasonable thing to say and indeed a reasonable (laughs) thing to write like 2000 words on. Uh, So, yeah, let's uh, much as I would like to just sit here and and say, like, you know, remember, you know, remember Ruben Sierra, remember Rusty Greer. Yeah, let's uh, you've got something a little more newsworthy. Yeah, well, I guess the most newsworthy thing to happen to a young hitter in the past week is Fernando Tatis Jr. seemingly being out for the season with a back injury, which is a huge bummer. I would think that even our producer, Bobby, who's probably deeply invested in the Pete Alonso Rookie of the Year campaign, also probably upset about Tatis being out for the year because he's probably the most exciting player in baseball this year, certainly the most exciting player to debut And yet we've lost Tatis and there are so many other compelling players around his age or just slightly older than Tatis, whether it's the couple of other guys I focused on in my article, Ronald Acuna and Juan Soto, or I mean, just the list goes on and on, whether it's Rafael Devers and Alonso and Jordan Alvarez, who you are writing about right now, and Gleyber Torres and Ozzy Albies and just on and on, Mancada. I'm leaving other really impressive players out of this list. And if you put it all together and look at the offensive performance of players that young or really through any age 20 season this year, they've been the best ever, better than any previous season. And the percentage of war that under 30 players have provided this year of all position player war is the highest ever. So young hitters and position players have never been better than they are right now. And you sort of went into why, like the steroid era uh, sort of inflated or, you know, extended careers and and inflated the value of guys in their 30s. And we're just, you know, I, I guess we've been added out of that as like a, an era for a while. But uh, there, you know, there are other factors at work in terms of, you know, teams recognizing the value of young players earlier. And it's it's sort of paradoxical. That in this age of service time manipulation, like we're seeing teams call on 19 year old Juan Soto as the Nationals did last year, for instance, mm-hmm. um, or, you know, Carlos Correa was uh, hitting in the middle of the lineup for a playoff team in, in 2015. Like this has been going back, I think, it, you know, in my mind, at least until 2015. I don't know. You yeah. might be able to trace this all the way back to like Trout and Harper coming up in 2012. Right. Yeah. I was writing about something like this for Grantland back in 2015. And even at that time, you could see that things were changing. And right, there are players who are now, fortunately, teams are rushing them up because they are clearly so prepared, whether it's Tatis or Alonso, two guys who were up on opening day. Of course, there's still the Vlad Guerreros who have to wait a while. But I think it's getting harder to argue that these players are not ready because they are so good at such early ages. And in this article, I looked at the aging curves, just the typical aging patterns for hitters. Not just in this era, not just in the steroid era, but even going back to the decade or so before the steroid era, because the steroid era really was an outlier. It was weird for reasons that I think we all have a good guess at. Players yeah, speaking during... <laughs> of the 1990s Texas Rangers. Yeah, right. Players during that era peaked later than they have really at any other point in baseball history, and they declined much more gracefully than they had. So players in that era would make the majors, and then they would gradually get significant 
significantly better. And eventually they would peak and there'd be a little bit of a plateau and then they would decline slowly in their 30s. Whereas now what we're seeing is players are debuting closer to their peaks than they ever have before. It's not that they don't still get a little bit better after they make the majors, but the difference between who players are when they make the majors and who they are when they're at their best is much smaller than it's been, much smaller than it was during the steroid era, but even smaller than it was before that. And on the flip side, on the other end of the career, you have really players having a very rough 30s collectively, players are just tailing off and declining much more quickly than than they have before, at least hitters, which is probably related just because you have this wave of young players coming up all the time and displacing the older guys. So there are a lot of reasons, I think, why this could be happening. And of course, there's always the question of, is it just a cyclical thing? Is it just a, a bunch of really good players happening to debut at the same time? But I'm going to guess that it's a little bit more than that. It just, it feels like there's too many of them for it to be a coincidence. And it's not just the guys who are extremely young. Like we've seen some college hitters, you know, Kyle Schwarber, Alex Bregman, and a few others come up like within 12 months of, of being drafted and make a, you know, make an impact at age 22, sometimes 23. So it doesn't stand out on if you're sorting by age, but by professional experience, it's a similar, similar kind of thing. It just feels like it's too common to be anything but systemic. And you mm-hmm. mentioned you know, Vladimir Guerrero, who had to wait. Like, I would say the, the Blue Jays held him back. Like, you could have made an argument he was ready by a, a, like a full year before he mm-hmm. got up to the, to the big leagues. And he still debuted a month after he turned 20, which is yeah. just incomprehensibly young. And so it's, you know, he's obviously, you know, I just said it's systemic and, and just zeroed back down to maybe one of the most exceptional cases in recent prospect <laughs> history. But it, it's, uh, there are too many of these guys. Yeah. And Vlad, of course, who's hitting now, he struggled a little bit at the start of the season and everyone was wondering what's wrong with Vlad and should we be worried about Vlad? And we were talking about, what, a month or two or three of, you know, less than expected performance. And I think we're all just sort of spoiled now because we do see the Acunas and the Tatises and the Sotos come up and hit the ground running and they just have no adjustment period at all. And I think that's partly because teams are probably smarter not just about targeting players to draft or sign as amateurs, but also about knowing when to promote them and the right schedule and when they're actually ready for the majors, assuming that they actually get promoted when they're ready. But I think because we have more technology now in the minors, you can kind of tell when someone is actually hitting the ball hard and is ready for that promotion as opposed to just maybe having a fluky hot streak, that sort of thing. So I think that's probably part of it. But just player development in general has gotten better. I think the talent pool has grown you're pulling players for from more countries than ever. And I think there's just more data out there, more information, better coaching, better instruction at the amateur level. And of course, once you get into pro ball, and I think the young generation of players is really receptive to that information. So things that the previous generation would have had to learn through failure and trial and error and might not have picked up until later in their careers, the guys who are making the majors now, they already know that stuff or they're learning it very quickly quickly. And so that's why they're excelling so fast. So I interviewed Hunter Pence earlier this year. He's 36, but of course he just remade his swing and he's having his most successful season in several years. And he said that if he had known the things as a young player that he knows now, 
he would have been way better then. And of course, that's always been the case in baseball history. Players maybe get smarter about certain things that they do as they get older, and they can compensate for some declining physical skills. But these days, I don't know that it works that way anymore. I think you kind of are taught those things early on. And so you combine the athleticism and the useful the youthful energy and quick reflexes and everything with intelligence, with information, with data, and you get guys who are really good from the get-go. And so we've got better information. We're the the players are more receptive to it, and we're getting better at teaching it. So I, yeah. I that sounds familiar. I, I swear I've read that somewhere before. <laughs> yeah, sounds like um, it'd be a good book. Yeah, uh, to yeah, but to, to your point, like it's interesting. You do hear those stories about other guys. I wonder. We're probably not to to the. We're not going to get to the point anytime soon where we stop seeing these, you know, name your Astros pitcher here or like, you know, one guy makes changes swing and and suddenly turns from a career triple A guy into Jeff McNeil, for instance, or mm-hmm. you know, something like that. We're I don't I don't know that we'll ever see the end of those stories, um, but I do wonder if like we did just have a bumper crop of of players who for the first time like were able to know themselves well enough that they were able to make that change yeah. uh, midstream, you know? Yeah, I do think that'll be the case. I, I think there will always be some players who discover something about themselves later on. Maybe they weren't in the right organization or they didn't cross paths with the right coach or something, or they weren't ready to hear it at that time for whatever reason. But I do think you'll probably get fewer turners and, you know, guys like that who have reinvented themselves at age 30 or in their 30s because those players won't have to reinvent themselves because they will have already optimized their approach when they were young. And so that might change aging patterns. Uh, Players always have to make adjustments, of course, as they get older and maybe just through seeing more pitches, you get better at reading pitch types and anticipating what pitchers will do. So you can always make that kind of improvement. But mechanically speaking, I don't know, maybe you'll just get those overhauls when you first get into a team system and that's who you'll be at least until maybe your skills decline and you have to make some change to compensate for that. And so this gets into, uh, you know, you, you brought in the historical aspect and, you know, you invoked Mel Ott and Ted Williams in your, in your piece. And that's, you know, maybe this is not a majority opinion, but that's the most interesting part of this trend to me is how this ends up looking from a historical perspective, you know, whether we end up how we view not only how we view this era, but like how this impacts individual players Hall of Fame cases, because mm-hmm. I remember writing about Juan Soto last year, like this sort of Soto versus Acuna. Yeah. You know, which one would you rather have article? It was, inter- you know, really interesting. And like Soto was so advanced at a hitter as a hitter at such a young age, like I said like it's you just look at the numbers he's putting up now and this is going to sound nuts but like I, it seems like he uh you know if he stays healthy he's a coin flip to make the hall of fame and yep. like you know i believed every bit of that and i think I, if anything like i i tampered down my expectations just because if anything the numbers would lead you to believe that it's even more likely than that and you know i was having a hard time believing my own conclusion. So I had to sort of soft pedal it a little bit, but you look at guys who come up at 19 or 20 and the hall of fame, like is yes, it's about peak impact, but it's, it's still so much about counting stats. Even if you, if you're the kind of person like me who looks like, and like the, the counting stat you're looking for is not 3000 hits, but it's 60 wins above replacement or something like that. Yeah. You, it just gives you such a huge, 
leg up to get there at 19 or 20 or 21 as opposed to, you know, somebody like Chase Utley, for instance, was the second best player in the National League for five years, but he's probably not going to make the Hall of Fame because he didn't become a big league regular until he was 26. And so it, I wonder if the the curve for guys like, you know, I don't know if Correa is on this pace anymore, but Lindor probably is. Acuna definitely is. You mm-hmm. know, players like that, that it's going to end up, we're going to end up like, it, it just seems like it, players like in the last generation, guys like Bonds and and uh, McGuire, you know, the college guys who who didn't, you know, get up. I guess Bonds still got up and was a, a, an impact big leaguer relatively young, but you know, guys who got a little bit of a later start and had to muscle through to to their thirties, and mm-hmm. you know, this current crop of big leaguers were guys like Miguel Cabrera, who was a major league regular at twenty, or Albert Pujols, who broke in at twenty one. They were viewed as exceptional because they were young, and they wouldn't be now. Right. And so, I wonder if you know you go back to the you know like the thirties and forties, like the the Melot Ted Williams uh, kind of era, where you know if you were an exceptional teenager, you might just be good enough to make the the big leagues, or there were uh, opportunities opening up because of players. Um, missing time due to military service or something like that. So you get guys who would have been major league regulars as, you know, as hitters, as relatively polished hitters in their teens. And so this turned into like a huge, you know, a huge driver of, of historical standards. And so I'm, you know, I'm interested to, you know, to, you know, look at these guys, hall of fame cases in 20, 25 years and see what, Mm -hmm. see what impact, coming up and being this good this young has. And the flip side of that is, you know, does that mean that we're going to see a bunch of guys fall off at the, you know, at age 30? That if right. that's going to be like the the new norm, particularly if teams continue on this trend of of not really valuing anything beyond age 30, 32 or so. Yeah, it seems like it should be premature to talk about the Hall of Fame cases of players who are 20 years old, but it's really not nuts at all to to make that case. And I linked to your article on that in mine, and I also took a look at that. And it's just that to debut at such a young age, to get regular playing time, and to be good in that playing time, so few players historically have done that. And so what Tatis and Acuna and Soto have done, I mean, all three of those guys were worth four war or more by the end of their age 20 seasons. And only 27 retired players have actually accomplished that in the past. And of those 27, 13 are already in the Hall of Fame. One is Adrian Beltre, who is going to be in the Hall of Fame. And then one more is A-Rod, who would certainly be a first ballot guy if not for his steroid use. So that is more than half. Even if you throw out A-Rod, that's more than half of the players who started their careers this way did end up in the Hall of Fame. So it's not premature to make that case. And you're right. It is kind of interesting to see how they'll be perceived because they are here so early and they are stars so early. You mentioned Cabrera and Pujols, and they're maybe kind of the model for players who were so good, so young, that by the time their careers are actually over, it's been a really long time since they were actually great players. Like By the time those guys are eligible for Hall of Fame induction, it will have been, what, 
12 years or something like that since they were actually at the peak of their powers. You'll have to really cast your memory back to remember them when they were at their best. But I don't think that will affect their chances of induction just because they were so incredible as young players. And I think they made their Hall of Fame cases at that point. But we're talking about guys who for the last several years of their careers, they're just hanging on and not really bolstering their cases at all. And maybe some of the younger writers who will be voting in those elections will have a hard time actually remembering what they looked like when they were at their best. Just like personally, I remember this being a big thing when, uh, Ken Griffey Jr. made his last all-star team in like 2007 or something that like he's one of those guys who, you know, he was a productive player into his 30s, but he wasn't, you know, he wasn't Ken Griffey Jr. And so like I remember so it might have been passing or you know somebody like that saying like I'm glad that younger fans can have like a, a glimpse that I wrote something, you know, I, yeah. I referenced that and wrote something very similar about Pujols when he his last 40 home run season news in the home run derby. Like I do think that guys with long decline phases uh, suffer a little bit in the public imagination. Like Pools has been a contract longer than he was a star, you know, at this <laughs> yeah, point. Almost, and, yeah. and, or he certainly will be by the time he retires. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the flip side of, of having a, a right tail of your career that, that that's that long is that you get to 3000 hits or 500, 600 homers. And, right. and the statistical case just becomes absolutely bulletproof. But you know, I, I, it is a shame that we, we are probably not going, even guys like, you know, or fans like you and me who, who remember Albert Pujols or, or Ken Griffey Jr. vividly, like that's not going to be the, the defining memory, which I think yeah. is just kind of a shame. Although in future Hall of Fame voting and maybe even in present Hall of Fame voting, I'm not sure that having seen the player actually matters all that much. I mean, that's yeah, maybe the, not. That's the thing the old school voters will say when the younger stat inclined generation doesn't vote for a, a Jack Morris or someone. They'll say, well, did you actually see him play? And often, yes, the person did see him play and knows enough about the stats to understand that even though he looked dominant and like a Hall of Famer at times, his total career wasn't really at that level. But I think you're getting a a younger generation of voters will be voting someday in the not too distant future. And I think we are maybe more comfortable evaluating players for better or worse. I I would say probably for the better on the whole, but maybe I'm biased. But I think we're kind of more comfortable looking at the numbers and saying whether I saw this guy play or not, he either has the case or he doesn't have the case because sometimes having seen the player can actually cloud your judgment in, in some way. And maybe you overrate him because of that or underrate him potentially. So I think that's the way that voting is moving. But aside from the Hall of Fame stuff, what I really like about this trend is that when guys get to their peaks and when we really get to know them as stars, we can look forward to a distant future where they are still really good and they are still among the best players in baseball. So, (laughs) I mean, you say that, uh, but I was actually, this reminded me of like, there was some fun fact, some way you could make the play with the parameters of the baseball reference play index in 2010, uh, where it was like players age 20 or younger in their first, um, in their first season in the big leagues, uh, you know, had sort them by, by OBP. And if they qualified for the batting title or something like that, Mm -hmm. but it was like the, the point was extremely young players with extremely high OBPs who played a lot, uh, in their first season. And so you sort it, they were like out of the top 10 names. There were like, 
six Hall of Famers, Veda Pinson, Edgar yes. Renteria, uh, Jason Hayward, and Starlin Castro. Right. You know, and like you do that search down, you get Soto, you get Harper, you get Vladimir Guerrero probably by the end of this season. Um, yeah, half a dozen other guys who have come up since since then. So, you know, I, I am actually a little bit gun shy about assuming anything. Mm-hmm. You know, as, as bullish as I just said I was about Soto, you know, we don't know. It, we're dealing with a different aging curve, I think, that makes it, you know, I, I think you can't throw out, like, the entire historical uh, record. Like, if, you know, Soto is, have, is putting up better plate discipline n- numbers than any teenage hitter in history, then that, you know, that is what it is, and that's impressive no matter what, and that probably means nothing but good things. But mm-hmm. I don't, you know, I don't know what kind of conclusions you could draw as fast as the game's changing right now. Yeah, that's true. It's funny you mentioned Veda Pinson. He showed up in my article, too. <laughs> he always shows up in these he things. Is, because... <laughs> yeah, he is the one guy, like, in any list of of, <laughs> of 27 guys who have done X by right. age Y, he is number 26 him yes. and tony if it's and it, it, if it goes to like age 29 or 30 he's the one non-hall of famer right if it goes to 22 or younger it's like him and tony canigliero yeah right veda pinson was worth 40 war by the end of his age 26 season and then he was you know not not worth 40 more war after that so he's the guy who shows up on those lists along with right canigliero guys who got hurt but I think that's yeah. true. That there's always a lot of turnover on any leaderboard in baseball from year to year. And certainly if you look several years out, and I actually wrote something earlier this year about how much turnover there's been among the top hitters in recent seasons, which is related to this article because it's partly guys reinventing themselves unexpectedly, but it's also just new great players showing up every year. But I think that can be sort of disorienting. But on the other hand, I think it's nice that we can look at Tatis and Acuna and Soto and think that there's every reason to expect that these guys will still be superstars in a decade. I mean, anything can happen, of course. Uh, you're talking about leaderboard turnover. And it made me think about how every year there is a different guy who is close to Mike Trout and war and we right. have to have the whole MVP discussion again. So yes. maybe, you know, one day one of these guys will be almost as good as Mike Trout for a year. Yeah, one day, inevitably. I, I hope it's a distant day. But anyway, because uh, maybe I, I dwell on our mortality too much whenever there's a, a player who is having a great season that 28 or something, I think, well, that's nice, but this is probably the best it's going to get for him. And, you know, three years from now, he might look old and his skills might be declining and he won't be the player he is. Whereas with this new crop of young players, yes, sure, new and perhaps even greater players will come along in coming years, but these guys won't go away for a while. There's, I mean, even if they don't age as well in their 30s as players in earlier generations have, You've got to count on Ronald Acuna being a a great player in 2030, right? There's every reason to expect that. So I think that's nice that we can look at them and not really think about the expiration date and just anticipate their futures while also enjoying their joyous presence. Yeah. All right. We have talked about this for a very long time now. So (laughs) uh, I got to let you go. We got to move on to other stuff. But uh I don't know. I I think it's obvious that this is something that that gets both of us fired up. It, you yes. know, this is like a it's a cool thing. This, this is a cool thing for every you know the casual fan loves the new and exciting players. Yeah. These players are intrinsically new and exciting. Many you know many of them are are interesting or fun or fun to watch in some reason and mm-hmm. like it appeals to the 
uh, the historical nerds. Yep. So I, you know, there's some for everybody here. Yeah. All right. Well, I'll talk to you next week. And until then, remember Veda Pinson. Yeah, I always will. <laughs> That'll do it for this week's episode of The Ringer MLB Show. Thanks, as always, to Zach and Ben for joining me. Thanks also to my special guest, C. Trent Rosecrans of The Athletic. You can find his work there at The Athletic. You can follow him on Twitter at C. Trent. And if you're so inclined, you can have a listen to his own podcast, the exquisitely named WARP in Cincinnati. Thanks to Bobby Wagner for producing today's episode. Thanks to Matt Chapman, Aristides Aquino, and Juan Soto for giving us stuff to talk about. And thank you for listening. Enjoy the week's action, and we'll see you next time. Support for today's show comes from Sonos. Sonos meticulously designs every speaker from the inside out. And in terms of ease of use, it's as easy as any home stereo system you're going to get. You just plug it in, you hook up the app, you can connect your streaming services, your TV, your turntable, all of your devices, and it's all controlled from your phone. Go to Sonos.com to learn more. If you think drunk driving is no big deal, you couldn't be more wrong. You could get in a crash, people could get hurt or killed, and you could get arrested, incur huge legal expenses, or even lose your job. So next time you plan on drinking, make sure you plan ahead. Designate a sober driver or use a ride service to get home safely. Drive sober or get pulled over. 